welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And on the podcast this week, doctoral student Akansha Vaswani interviews Professor John Reed. So thank you for being with us here today, Dr. Reed. And we're really interested in hearing more today about, you know, your, your varied areas of research. But before we dive into that, uh, I'd like to ask how and why did you get involved in critiquing mainstream psychiatric practices? Uh, what were some of the questions that in- intrigued you initially uh, when you started working as a clinical psychologist? Okay, well, I, I think I got into psychology because, um, like most teenagers, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why all the adults were screwed up. Mm-hmm. And I was on a good day. On a bad day, I spent lots of time trying to figure out why I was so screwed up. Mm-hmm. And um, on most days, it seemed like the whole world was a bit of a mess and communication was not good within my own family, which I had some inkling was because, you know, it was to do with my father being a, a fighter pilot in the Second World War and, and continually losing, seeing close friends shot out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And so he was fairly non-communicative and uh, understandably so but I didn't know that as a child he, mm-hmm. he explained it to me explained it to me later so I mean I think that generation had a lot of that sort of thing going on but I think most as I say most teenagers struggle at times and and I I thought rightly or wrongly that one way to deal with it that would be to study psychology and try and understand myself and people a bit a bit better. Uh, unfortunately, undergraduate psychology didn't teach me anything at all about yeah. uh, about very much at all. It was all to do with perception and rats and God knows what. Except one the, one major influence during undergraduate was a, a, by accident. I think I discovered Ronald Lang's writing, mm-hmm. um, who in the nineteen sixties and seventies was one psychiatrist who was uh, making sense to, to to our generation anyway about. Mm-hmm. What causes madness, and um, he, he would have these wonderful books about describing families and how once you saw a crazy person in the context of their family, then they they didn't look so crazy anymore. So it was a major influence for me, and then I ended up um, going to the states to to train as a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. So it was the the reading was in uh, undergraduate or graduate school? Oh, I discovered Ronnie Lang during my undergraduate years. It was the only piece of the whole three years of psychology that was of any interest whatsoever. And mm-hmm. um, the rest was even the even the as they as they call it the abnormal psychology was all about diagnoses and and it might as well have been a psychiatry textbook, mm-hmm. which is still the case actually. Most psychology textbooks are horribly biological um, and have very little psychology in them. Interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Lang, Lang I discovered about the age of age of twenty, and later on in my life, I was lucky enough to to meet him and spend some time with him shortly before he died, which was a, a, a great honor and privilege. So, so one area you said that you were reading about that was different was about the influence of family in the yeah. development of difficulties. What were what what were other things that piqued your interest that were not biological at the time? Well, at, at the time, I, I just always just found craziness interesting. I think most people find madness interesting. So there's two types of interest. The sort of interest that um, terrifies you and makes you want to keep a distance, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, and the sort of interest that makes you want to get closer to it. And I, I'm not sure why, but I always wanted to get closer to it. 
I just found it more interesting than depression and anxiety and things like that. Right. Uh, so, my, in fact, my very first, uh, when I was a clinical student and we had to do our first interview in front of all the staff, you know, through the one-way mirror, mm-hmm. all my colleagues were terrified that someone with psychosis would show up. And I was terrified that someone without psychosis <laughs> would show up and sit there and say, I'm depressed because my girlfriend's left me. Mm-hmm. And I would say, so what? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, depression, anxiety, very serious things. But I, but I always just found hearing voices and believing that the CIA is out to get you and that red lorries are particularly significant. I just found that so much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think possibly because I felt a bit crazy myself at times. Mm-hmm. So, since my my very first job, actually before before graduate training, um, I had a job for a year in New York, in the Mon- in Montefiore Hospital, in the psychiatric ward there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I didn't know it at the time, but I think I really enjoyed that partly because it was reassuring to know that there were people who were even crazier than I was. And so so they didn't seem that that odd or, or strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of, for instance, like you know, spending a lot of time wanting to kill yourself. I mean, I'd spent a fair amount of time as a teenager thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think a lot of teenagers do that. So, so I think part of my fascination was was around my own stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand my my own difficulties and my fears and and all the rest of it. Um, and some of it just because it is, it, it just seems to me inevitably fascinating why some people hear voices that other people can't hear. Mm-hmm. And, I didn't know at the time that most cultures only only in developed in the developed world is that considered a, a sign of an illness. In most cultures, um, that, that's considered quite normal. Some people hear voices and some people don't. So later on, I'm jumping ahead, but later on, I spent 20 years in New Zealand and, and Maori people there think it's mm-hmm. perfectly normal to hear voices and, and worry about people who don't hear voices. So, yeah. um, but at, at, at the time, it, it was um, I didn't know and I didn't know mm-hmm. any of. So it sounds like you took some some degree of comfort in being around madness. Yeah, I, that, that's yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, obviously, it can be scary as well because mm-hmm. I don't want to romanticize it necessarily because some people hear voices that are absolutely terrifying, mm-hmm. telling them to do awful things, to hurt themselves, to hurt other people. But they also hear good voices, voices reassuring them, telling them everything's going to be all right, and and. I I, I come, eventually came to understand it as pretty much as very similar to dreams, only, only doing it when we're awake. You know, like we all have mm-hmm. dreams that are pretty psychotic, if we're mm-hmm. honest. But we now, since Freud, we, we accept that they have some meaning if we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we have those experiences when we're awake, we're told that they mean nothing. There's just something wrong with our dopamine system. It has nothing to do with our our life experiences or our circumstances, which, which of course is nonsense because all the evidence shows, I, I, I now know, all the mm-hmm. evidence shows it has everything to do with our life experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about, you know, as you were uh, going through your own issues at the time, were you ever given a label or diagnosed in any way? No, I, I, I managed to stay clear of mental health services. Um, mm-hmm. I did see... A counsellor at university, I remember, getting up the courage to go see a counsellor who who saw me for one hour and said I wasn't quite mad enough. He was very busy and I wasn't quite mad enough to warrant his services. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to be reassured or not by that. 
Yeah. Um, so, in other words, he had more more. There was he was one counselor for the whole of the university. So oh wow! Okay. Back in those days, so I didn't quite qualify. So no, I've never I've never picked up a diagnosis. Um, mm. But like the rest of us, if, if I'd come into contact with psychiatry, I would have several diagnoses. Right. Um, most of us, most of us are on several pages of the diagnostic and statistical manual. And mm. and as I say to my undergraduate students, if you can't find yourself in the DSM anywhere, then you really need to get a life. <laughs> right. It affirms your personhood in some way. Yes. Right. Yes. And so going back to you came to the United States to study clinical psychology and. What were some of your influences there? Well, I, I was very lucky. I, I was uh, so I trained at the University of Cincinnati, which is a, not an interesting city at all, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the clinical program was wonderfully eclectic. So we had staff uh, who were uh, fluent in psychoanalysis and Algerian stuff and behaviorism and cognitive therapy it was only just beginning. That was a, that was a long time ago. Um, but there's a whole range of different approaches, all respecting one another. Uh, which is why I'd come away from Britain to train, because at that point in history, Britain was, uh, British training was entirely behavioral. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying very hard to be a science and to compete with uh, uh, psychiatry, because <laughs> it wrongly thought psychiatry was a science, which it isn't. Um, so everything was very behavioral there, which is, you know, it can be useful, but it's a, it's a very narrow way of looking at human beings. So it, it was a wonderful training in, in many different models, uh, family therapy, couples therapy, sex mm. therapy. Um, I was very, very lucky and um, had a small cohort of just eight, eight other students who were all lovely people. And it was just, mm. I remember it was a very, very special, special time. So that was two years or you did the PhD there? No, that was, I did a, a, a doctorate in clinical psychology. So it was a total of five years, mm-hmm. a master's and then three years after that. And and what happened after that? Where did you decide to go uh, Back to England then for a while. I worked in the NHS, uh, clinical psychologist there, um, for several years. Mm-hmm. And then our family moved to, we had some young kids, we moved to New Zealand and um, ended up there for 20 years and only came back to England um, four or five years ago. So can you tell us a little bit about what were the differences you observed working in the NHS versus working in New Zealand? Well, very similar, actually, the mental health uh, systems. Uh, New Zealand has modelled itself largely on on the British health system. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got the same sort of dominance of the biological model. Uh, so the over-medicating people, over-reliance on diagnoses in both systems. And within that, you've got pockets of wonderful people or small groups of people trying to do therapeutic work anyway, mm-hmm. and despite the nullifying effects of the of an overly medical model so they're actually from quite similar as i mentioned before one difference was um in new zealand uh, maori ways of healing had uh, people tried really hard to integrate those into mental health mm-hmm. services uh, and that was a very positive influence because they have a much more holistic uh approach including looking at spiritual issues um, and they never, ever see the problem as located inside one individual, which I had never done anyway, but it was very gratifying to see this whole culture just assuming that if there's a problem, you need to get everybody together to talk mm. about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say everybody, I, I, I mean everybody. They, they had this concept of whānau, which means extended family. Mm-hmm. So they were just 
don't know, it could be 10 people, 15, 20 people, and they would just sit and talk about it in, in the context of the meaning of what's gone on for that person and the intergenerational oh. meaning, trying to figure out where it's come from. Is it some sort of a gift? Is it some sort of a punishment? I wouldn't necessarily understand or agree with all of their conceptualizations, but the point is they started from the premise that the however odd the experience, it has meaning, and that meaning could be figured out collectively, and that was the healing process, <laughs> um, which is so far removed from the Western biological you know, problem is in the individual, there's something wrong with their brain or their genes, and the answer is chemical, a chemical solution or electricity, which doesn't work, but no one can admit that. So that was that was wonderful, and and they genuinely, although obviously Maori people had an awful time at the hands of um, white people arriving there in colonization. Nowadays in New Zealand, there's a genuine attempt to integrate mm-hmm. to, and to learn from one another, and, and Maori are, are incredibly, um, I don't know, forgiving is the right word, or uh, willing to share their knowledge, which is mm-hmm. uh, amazing given how they've been how they've been treated. That was an important difference. So. so how did that, you know, being around Maori people and their practices, how did that kind of influence your understanding of madness or psychosis or hearing voices? Well, in some ways it, it, it didn't change it. it. It sort of confirmed it because uh, mm-hmm. I'd, always, I'd always assumed and, and worked on the premise that voices and delusions do have meaning um, and that they come from life experiences mm-hmm. and if you listen to what the voices are saying and ask the person you know who the voices remind them of and all, all of that it, it, they tend to make perfect sense not not always and sometimes the person might not want to tell you or, mm-hmm. or might not want to know themselves because um, I think voices can operate as a defense against what's what's gone on in, in the past. But um, I guess I, the, the way they challenged me is that I, I always assumed that voices were ultimately were internal experiences that we project onto the uh, onto the world, and then we, we hear them coming back at us, so that they are actually part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas a Mari would, some Mari would sort of get that, but some would say, no, no, these are actually really messages from ancestors. Mm-hmm. You don't understand them, mm-hmm. and then I would. Have I wouldn't know what to do with that. But I, I would, I would not, because I don't believe in that sort of stuff. So, well, that doesn't doesn't make them right or me right. But so that was an interesting challenge when they said, no, it's it's, it's not just that there's an internal experience projected. These these are real messages from real people mm-hmm. who are dead sometimes. So, uh, I just have to sit with that without necessarily believing it. Okay. I may be wrong. I'm not a very spiritual person. I'd like <laughs> to be, but <laughs> but that did influence maybe. So if you had, if you were working with someone, say, who had that belief, you'd be able to sit with it? Yes. Yeah. And indeed, I just, I just remember the only time I ever heard voices, so this sort of could have contradicts what I've just said, the only time I've ever, ever heard voices was when a very, very good friend was killed in a car accident. Mm. And that night, he came, he came to see me to say goodbye. Still got teary thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, and when that happened... Yeah, um, I've thought with all my knowledge and experience and, uh, and work that I've done for so long, I still got scared I was going crazy. And then I had to settle down and said, look, for, for God's sake, John, it doesn't matter. He's either there or he isn't. Just sit down and listen to him. 
So that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, given that I don't believe in that. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he came to say goodbye anyway, so that, mm-hmm. that, that's that. So Right. Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, it kind of fits with what you're saying. It, it's a powerful enough experience that it entered, I don't know, your yeah. consciousness or unconsciousness in some way. Yes, yeah, so I think just accepting other people's experiences and other people's explanation of, mm-hmm. of their experiences. So another major influence on, on me in that regard was American psychiatrist Lauren Mosier, who um, started the Soteria House movement, if that's the right word. And so he set up a couple of houses where people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia could just be without being mm-hmm. treated or nobody trying to fix them. Mm-hmm. Um, the criteria for working there was not whether you had a, a degree in psychology or psychiatry, uh, it was whether you could sit with extreme states and mm. not be freaked out. That was the criteria for working there. Mm-hmm. They called it uh, being with, which is mm-hmm. a nice simple term. And that had amazing, amazing results, at least as effective as treatment as usual on symptoms and far more effective than, than treatment as usual in terms of quality of life and friends and getting back to work and those sorts of things. So it's interesting. I'm very. I just realised my first two influences I've identified for you are both psychiatrists, Ronnie Lang mm-hmm. and Lauren. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting, given I spent half my life criticising psychiatry as a profession and, right. and calling it a pseudoscience and so forth. But there you go. <laughs> but they stepped out of the margins of their own. Yes, they did, and they and they paid a price mm-hmm. for it as well. And Lauren Mosier came back. He, Lauren Mosier was head of uh, schizophrenia research at the National Institute of Mental Health. And in the middle of doing all this research on Soteria House, he went on holiday and came back and his desk had been cleared. They just mm. fired him because he was showing that a non-medical, non-biological approach worked better than the drugs. And that mm. was just intolerable to um, the professional psychiatry. So they mm-hmm. fired him. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote the most wonderful resignation letter in the history of resignation letters from the American Psychiatric Association, saying mm-hmm. he didn't, it, it started with, I didn't realize the letters now stood for the American Psychopharmacological Association. I suggest everybody look at resignation letter, Lauren Mosier. Maybe we'll American put a link, uh, maybe we'll put a link to that with this yeah. episode. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, hearing you, I'm, I'm wondering about what you think, why are we as a society so afraid to embrace non-biological interpretations of mental health? Well, there's, a, there's, there's different layers of reasons. I mean, the, sim- the simple answer is the power of the, of pharma- pharmacological, of, of the pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and, and their endless propaganda, especially in America, more, <clears throat> more so in America than elsewhere. But the, 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 the influence they have over mental health professionals and particular psychiatry, which basically sold its soul to the drug companies about 30 or 40 years ago, mm-hmm. and has now forgotten what a proper professional boundary is between itself and a profit-making organisation. So that's, that's one level. It's a very powerful political and economic force um, promoting simplistic biological explanations for human death. But at a, at a more psychological level, for all of us, when we're in distress, I think there's something attractive about not having to think about the bad things that have happened in our lives, mm. the bad things that are happening now in our lives, our fears, mm-hmm. the bit we don't like about ourselves, all of that yucky stuff yeah. mm-hmm. that is painful and upsetting uh, and is attractive to just accept, uh, you know, 
I've got this thing, I've got this diagnosis, this, this, this illness or something, I can't help it, it's not my fault, it's very simple, I know what I've got, I know what's causing me to be upset, and I know what the solution is. It's so, it's wonderfully simple, it's simple intellectually, but it's also simple emotionally, in as much as you don't have to feel anything about, you don't have to explore anything, or, it's, it's the quick fix, and I think we all have <clears throat> some responsibility for that i mean we all people when they're distressed we we go to the gp who is a doctor mm-hmm. and even though these are not medical phenomena these are human reactions to life i think mm-hmm. we all trot off to the gp and tell tell our gp mm-hmm. and, and almost feel disappointed if if he or she doesn't prescribe something for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also i mean there's, a, there's something reassuring about having a, a a medical sort of label, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in the short term, at least, it, it tells you. It tells you that other people have got the same thing, so mm-hmm. you're not alone. Right. It tells you or suggests to you that the doctor knows what it is. Now, the worst thing you can you go to a doctor, and the worst thing you want to hear after you've told them what's wrong with you, you don't want to hear, "I don't know what that is." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that before. Right. <laughs> Scary. So to hear that, oh, what you've got is a major depressive disorder, or what you have is borderline personality disorder, or all of these somewhat meaningless labels which sound like medical diagnosis, that then they're not, of course, and they have very little science behind. But they can be quite reassuring mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the short term until you realize the stigma that goes along with them and the fact that actually they've explained nothing at, at all. Mm-hmm. So, but it, but it is attractive. It's simple. You don't have to. As I said, I don't have to explore the messy parts. Mm-hmm. And and also, it's attractive politically for, for politicians because uh, let's suppose we've just had our latest figures come out in England that there's now one in six of us on antidepressants in England. Mm-hmm. It's about the same where you are, similar mm-hmm. levels. But let's suppose that that's a genuine need. One in six of us are actually clinically depressed to the extent that we need a chemical intervention, which, of course, is absolutely rubbish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Despite Brexit and Trump and all those depressing things going on, I don't actually think that one in six of us are clinically depressed. Let's suppose we were. That would mean if if those things are socially caused, if that depression is socially caused, then politicians would need to do something. Mm-hmm. They would need to do something about the social causes of depression, like poverty and child abuse and violence against women and all of those things. But if we if we can convince ourselves and politicians that actually th- these are not social phenomena. These are these are illnesses. You can't you can't prevent these things. There's just a certain proportion of people who are genetically predetermined to become depressed. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to put more money into making the first five years of life safe for our children. We don't need to reduce poverty. We don't need to reduce violence, etc., etc. Et so politically, it's very the biological model is very convenient for politicians. They don't have to do anything about all this human distress. So for those reasons, in combination, I think it's a very powerful mm-hmm. and attractive model. And it's, and, it's, and it's why it is so hard to move it, despite all the research evidence showing that the model is wrong, that there's mm-hmm. very little evidence. You know, there is, we, they're now conceding that there is no, for instance, there is no chemical imbalance to depression, mm-hmm. which they have promoted for the last 30, 40 years. We're even beginning to hear now that we have never said there's a biochemical imbalance with depression. This is a sort of myth that anti-psychiatrists like you, John, <laughs> put about. 
that we used to say that was a, was a chemical imbalance, which is <laughs> so bizarre. Mm-hmm. We've just had a bit current because yesterday on our BBC, which is usually quite a good, reliable source of information, I just had one of our lead psychiatrists announce a showing how you cause you can cause depression in a petri jar with <laughs> chemical unbelievable and and saying that most people in england who are depressed are not on antidepressants yet hmm. and this is with, when we already have one in six on antidepressants so that meant that means he just told the country on, on our respectable bbc channel that the actual figure that needs to be on antidepressants is more than one in three Wow. It's effectively what he said. Mm-hmm. And given that these drugs are prescribed to women twice as often as men, he's obviously therefore recommending that every other woman should be on antidepressant. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre. Mm-hmm. And, and he's literally he's explaining to people the, the chemistry behind depression. It's, it's, it's really interesting. We were speaking about, I think, the, the reasons we don't want to buy into non-biological explanations. And, and as you were talking, I was also thinking about uh, family members, because you you know, going back to what you were talking about family earlier, that when yeah. when someone is distressed and the and the psychiatrist or doctor gives a label, family members are reassured as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's happening lots with our children, isn't it? ADHD, mm-hmm. um, and, and you show me a child with a diagnosis of ADHD, and, and, and I'll show you a family that needs some help of some kind. Mm-hmm. I know, I know that's you know some uh, one of the problems with identifying family as a cause or solution um, is that it's it's seen as family blaming right. and we've been told we must we mustn't blame families well that's very well but that's all good but sometimes families do need some help um, and uh, rearing kids is not always easy and if you've got a kid that is for whatever reason a bit busier or a bit more impatient than other kids it's difficult mm-hmm. um, but the answer is not to give them amphetamines. And you've got, I think in some states in America, I was reading one in four boys under the age of 11 are now on, on, on Ritalin. Mm-hmm. Um, in England, we're, we're not quite that bad, but we're catching up rather fast, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But that idea that, you know, troubled kids have mental illnesses um, is particularly, particularly disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and you, then you've got teachers on the lookout for it and, um, diagnosing it when it's not there. I mean, there's an interesting history to ADHD. When I was training, it used to, the diagnosis it used to be called minimal brain dysfunction. It turned out to be so minimal they couldn't find it, so they, they changed the diagnosis to ADHD. Um, but yes, so you're right. Families can find it reassuring to you know, have a psychiatric label for their for their children, mm-hmm. um, and that explains all the family's problems then. And Ronnie Lang and other people back in the 60s were writing, and um, Lyman Wynn and other family therapists were writing a lot about the identified patient. And we were, we were taught a lot of, about that in my training, not talked about so much anymore, but the function of having one person in the family who is messed up and, and, mm-hmm. and explained everybody else's problem. If only little Johnny didn't have ADHD, our relationship would be fine you know it was so stressed by little johnny mm-hmm. whereas it might, it might well be the other way around you know? right but and i think expanding that to something you were saying earlier a lot of the families that 
have not, you know, a lot of families that have problems also live in a society which has a lot of problems. So, for example, families who live in situations of poverty are more likely. So there's that bi-directional influence there as well. So even if we're looking at families and thinking about how to do it in ways that are non-pathologizing of families, I think, again, it's a social problem, not a family problem. That's that's right. The, the, the uh, mental health problems are far more common in in uh, within poor families. Poverty statistically mm-hmm. is the most powerful predictor of just about everything. Mm-hmm. Certainly, mental health problems, depression, uh, psychosis. But the the other thing to say about families is that most very often the sort of problem that they're struggling with will be an intergenerational mm. one. So it, it, all parents do the best they can by definition, but. Most parents who are finding it difficult to parent probably had, not always, but probably had a difficult childhood themselves and weren't parented particularly well themselves. So they have no role model for what being a good parent actually is. This isn't about blaming anybody. This is about identifying intergenerational patterns, Mm -hmm. um, very often combined with poverty, as you mentioned. and identifying those patterns so that they can be broken. But unfortunately, our, our model, the only thing that's interested in intergeneration is genetics and, and the illusion that these things, you know, depression or schizophrenia or, or whatever, have a genetic component to them. And the evidence for that is so weak, it's laughable. Unfortunately, the, the research budget, a huge proportion of money still goes on genetic research. Even, let's say, my, area, my own area of schizophrenia, for the first 80 years since since it was invented, they were looking for the schizophrenia gene. Mm-hmm. They, finally gave, they finally gave up on that. And now they're looking for the interactions with lots of smaller genes, if you like, to put it, put it simply. Right. I, asked, I asked them at a conference recently how much longer they will need to get to the end of this research. <laughs> and they said, oh, about 20 years. And I said, at the end of that, how much of the variance do you think you will have actually explained? And they said, they had a big think in a little conference and they uh, discussion with one another. They said, well, about 17%. I said, at that point, can we have all the money back? The millions and millions that have been wasted. Um, what were they, they going to do if they ever found the schizophrenia gene? Start narrowing the gene pool? Well, you know, I mean, in your country, you still have to, some genetic counselling is going on. Not many mm-hmm. other totally unethical to sit people down and say, because you've got this thing called schizophrenia, maybe you should consider not having children. That's yeah. appalling. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I think, you know, it would be interesting if you could speak a little bit about your research on uh, trauma. You know, we we're speaking about family and uh, the impact of poverty. And I know you've done a lot of research on the impact of traumatic or adverse experiences on mental health problems. Yeah, mostly in relation to psychosis. But so this all, this all came about for... During the 20 years I was working as a clinical psychologist or a manager of mental health services in the United States, New Zealand, and then England, time and time again I would come across people who would, who would be quite psychotic, but if you can establish a relationship, and that's the hard part sometimes, and they would tell you their life history, not always, but very, very often, um, pretty awful stuff would happen that was clearly linked to the voices that they were hearing and, and so forth. So when I got back into academia after after 20 years of working as a clinical psychologist, um, that's what I wanted to research. And, uh, and I was surprised to see there was a fair amount of 
there's a few studies out there linking child abuse with psychosis, but nobody had reviewed them or pulled them together. So we did that first. That's back in 97. Goodness, that's a long time ago we started on this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then started doing some small-scale studies, looking just looking at the relationship um, between child, usually child physical abuse and sexual abuse. Um, we were a bit slow to include neglect and, and emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the relationship was very, very powerful, um, whichever way you studied it. Um, and more and more people started doing that around the world. And, and by 2005, we put out the first large-scale review of all the literature, um, which mm-hmm. really got the whole issue on, on the map. Um, it's um, incredibly, child, child sexual physical abuse are incredibly predictive of, of psychosis. Or and, and however you measure it, whether you, whether you go down the diagnostic route, which is not very scientific, if you go down the... Uh, uh, relationship with specific uh, experiences like hearing voices, mm-hmm. hearing bad voices, hear, having paranoid delusions. The relationship is extremely, extremely strong, um, much stronger than anything on the biogenetic side of uh, any biogenetic predictors. Mm-hmm. Um, that obviously was somewhat controversial to start, start with. We had the family blaming accusation thrown at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the uh, or you shouldn't talk with schizophrenics about these sorts of things. It'll just upset them. Mm. At the, you can't believe them if you if they tell you that they were abused as a child. It's part of their illness. It used to make me extremely angry. That's mm-hmm. the ultimate blaming the victim. So yeah. so not only people have gone through these awful experiences and gone crazy as a result of them, but the people who are supposed to heal them mm-hmm. are telling them it didn't happen. That is is. Un- so unforgivable. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the things that psychiatrists do, that makes me the angriest. I think it's a little, a little less often now. Partly, I think, because we have we have managed to get this on on the agenda. It's not not seen as quite so controversial as it was twenty years ago. And it's, it's the other side of all this. Another tract on my research is about the public's beliefs about the causes of madness. And I'm going to bring these two things together mm-hmm. because. When you ask the public what causes, proper surveys of the public around the world, what causes, well, anything really, but including psychosis, certainly depression, anxiety, but including psychosis and schizophrenia mm. or illness. The public in every country except one, and you'll be able to predict which country that is, in every country except one, and we've mm. done it in 24th countries now, they say it's, it's social causes. Mm. They say, Loneliness, poverty, abuse, violence, war trauma, rape, stress at work, stress at power. They also include down the bottom of their list some biogenetic stuff. They don't think it's all psychosocial. But their primary way of understanding madness is that bad things happen and they make us crazy. Mm-hmm. The, the exception is, I've heard, the United States. And I, I think that is largely because of the endless bombardment via drug company advertisement on television and because you have the most biological mental health system possibly in the world. But by and large, what I'm trying to say is that this idea that bad things happening is what drives us crazy is only foreign to a tiny one profession. Mm -hmm. So it's only, it's about 1% of the mental health workforce, which is like psychiatrists. uh, And it's only them that doesn't get that madness is caused primarily by human interactions and 
um, bad things people do to one another, or unfortunate things like losses and so forth. Um, they are so out of kilter with the rest of the population. And that means they're out of kilter with their patients because they just cannot grasp what this anger is about. They have no idea what they, what they call anti-psychiatry, which is their label for dismissing everybody who criticizes them. They, they, they just, they, they don't grasp that the people uh, and their families and, and just about everybody mm-hmm. has a conception that if you hear voices or you, you know, you're paranoid, it's because bad stuff's happened. They are the only ones who don't get that. And they have a wonderful defense against it because if, if you sit there and say, no, doctor, actually I'm hearing voices because this, this, and this has happened to me, they say, ah, so you also have lack of insight, which is a symptom of the illness that you say you haven't got. Mm-hmm. There is no way out of that. Okay. And it's mm-hmm. an evil thing to do to somebody who's mm-hmm. really struggling, vulnerable and upset and is trying to tell you their story and say, no, I haven't got a single schizophrenia, nothing wrong with my brain, it's just because this, this, and this has happened to me, and, and, right. and that, that proves that you have got an illness. That's a horrible, horrible mm-hmm. thing to do. Right. It's also right. A, it's a power dynamic, right? Because if the doctor tells you yes. what it is, you're, you're going to discount your belief or your explanation for someone who yeah. knows better, who's seen this before, as you were alluding yeah. to earlier. Yes. It's, uh, it's not okay that they, they do that. Uh, I think it's... But it must be very dissatisfying for them as well, I think, because um, they never they never get to experience that closeness that psychologists and therapists and counselors and and well, people in general experience when you're sitting with someone you care about and you're trying to understand what's going on for them and you're listening really hard to their story and trying to make sense of it with them. Mm-hmm. They don't get to experience that. They all they experience is this, is this fear. And this distance and the this objectification of people and mm-hmm. that must be a terribly unsatisfying job, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they get all this criticism as well, and they have no idea what that's about. They, they cannot grasp why are people so cross with us. And what's and it's quite funny actually because what they do with that is the same thing they do with the distress that is uh, that they want to keep a distance from. They label it. Mm-hmm. They call it anti psychiatry. So, and then say, ah, oh, now I know why you're upset with me. You've got this thing called anti-psychiatry, which is <laughs> causing you to question my judgment. Ah, ah, now it all makes sense. <laughs> it's so, it's pathetic, really. Mm-hmm. I was reading something you wrote. I think this is from 2005. And I, I this was my favorite line from, it was a, a brief uh, piece in uh, from the British Psychological Society. Uh, and this line that said, life events have been relegated to the role of triggers of an underlying genetic time bomb. And so I think you're right. We are talking more about trauma and stress and adverse events, but more in the sense of, and I think the name of that article was the bio, bio, bio model of madness. Well, I'm just, just quickly, that, just, uh, that was not my phrase. I, I stole that phrase. Mm-hmm. I, I have to give credit where credit's due. That came from the chair of the American Psychiatric Association that mm. year, Stephen Shelstein, who uh, was a very brave psychiatrist and, and wrote a piece in Psychiatry News about he was trying to tell his colleagues to wake up and, and, and stop being so passive in the role of the drug companies and so forth. And he used the term bio-bio-bio-model. So just to give credit where credit's due. But yeah, this underlying genetic time bomb thing, 
we've all the textbooks talk about uh, psychology textbooks, nursing textbooks, psychiatry textbooks, they all talk about the biopsychosocial model mm-hmm. and the stress vulnerability model, don't they? As if so people say, oh well, we've already covered that. We covered the psychosocial in, in, in the biopsychosocial model. But but that model just says if you haven't got a genetic predisposition, then these things are not, uh, mm-hmm. not um, which is also a lie because the um, uh, there's a downside to being old because you remember these things. But in 1970, 1977, when they introduced two psychiatrists, uh, um, I've forgotten their names, uh, wrote the first paper on the biopsychosocial stress vulnerability model of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and they said that the vulnerability part in that stress vulnerability, okay, the vulnerability part doesn't have to be inherited. That can be acquired by trauma. Hmm. So both sides of the equation can be stress-related, So, and which is common sense. If you've been done in as a child at age two, three, and four really badly and repeatedly, mm-hmm. you're likely, yes, you're going to be more sensitive to stress when you're 8 and 10 and 20 and so forth. So the, the stress vulnerability model can all be stress. But the, bio, the biological psychiatrist just stole that idea and said, oh, well, obviously the predisposition, the vulnerability part is genetic. So interestingly, it's Zubin and Springer, their names have just come back to me. Zubin and Spring, mm-hmm. the, the inventors of that model said the vulnerability can be acquired. Wow. It's, never, it's never mentioned anymore. That just disappeared. Mm-hmm. That was washed out of history. And so, you know, we've we've been talking a long time about kind of how we've come to this point in 2019 and where do you think we're going from here you know i know that you do so much research and there's colleagues of yours who do so much research on bringing what we've been speaking about today to the fore so where where do you think we need to move where do you think we're moving well i think let's say first of all i, I don't think um that things are going to change because of the research in a way we don't we, i don't think we need any more research about what causes what i think it's pretty clear what causes what so the the barriers to change are not the sort of barriers that can be broken down by research papers Uh, yes it's yes it's important to do the research and keep establishing what we've been talking about but uh, change is not going to come from that because we're up against the drug companies we're up against a powerful profession that is effectively operating on behalf of the drug companies now so they are not embarrassed at all by the, the lack of evidence for their, their treatments. They don't seem to care about that. They're not. So our mental health services are not evidence-based at the moment. Um, so it's going to have to come from social struggle and uh, work in the media, the sort of stuff that Mad in America is doing and its affiliates around the world, the sort of stuff that the Hearing Voices Network is doing, which is the most exciting change in mental health mm-hmm. services. They wouldn't like me to call them mental health services because they're not. Mm-hmm. But the fact that in 20 countries now there are people who used to be labelled as schizophrenic and drugged up to the eyeballs and locked up um, for large proportions of their life, refusing to go along with all that and coming together to support one another, 20 countries, mm-hmm. um, that's very, very exciting. That's where the change is going to come because ultimately we've got to start just saying no to the medications, uh, not not all of the time. Sometimes they can be helpful, but certainly to the extent that we're medicating ourselves as a society at the minute, it's ridiculous. We all have a role to play. But I'm hopeful at the minute, for instance, in Britain, um, in the last year or two, I, I've been more involved in the, with antidepressants, which is new, somewhat new for me, because there's a big push here to do something about the overprescribing. Mm-hmm. 
and about the new research that's coming out that's showing that people are really struggling to come off these drugs. But it actually isn't so new. It has been around for a long time, but no one's paid any attention mm-hmm. to it. And the Royal College of Psychiatry here in, in Britain has actively denying the withdrawal effects. Um, so we're having a bit of a rerun at the minute about what happened with benzodiazepines in the 1980s mm-hmm. when everybody said, oh, they're not addictive. What's, what's the problem? Just mm. So they're, they're doing that at the minute. But we're winning, clearly winning. There's media stories almost all the time now about the research. Uh, we've done some of the research. Well, we've done a big, uh, my colleague James Davis and I did a review of all the studies showing that shows a, over half of people when they try and come off antidepressants will have withdrawal effects. And about half of those describe them as severe. You have the uh, national government guidelines saying the opposite, saying that they only last a week and it's very minimal. And it's an, been an interesting struggle to expose how all this came about because we, we've learned that the, our national guidelines, um, when they were written, in 2009, we we used we have a Freedom of Information Act here, which I think you have also. Mm-hmm. They have to answer our questions. We asked to send them to send us the research supporting our national national guidelines, saying that it only lasts a week, and they had to acknowledge that there wasn't any. They just made it up. And these are the guidelines mm-hmm. our family doctors rely on. On the positive side, um, we have an all-party parliamentary group in in our uh, in Parliament, which is focused on um, prescribed drug dependence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have uh, managed to get the Public Health England, which is a branch of the National Health Service, to do a review of prescribed drug dependence and including antidepressants. Mm-hmm. So that's going on at the moment. NICE, have, uh, our National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is the NICE guidelines, they are reviewing their guidelines. Mm-hmm. The media's full of um, stories now about people struggling to get off antidepressants and how overprescribed they are. Um, so, we, again, we've got this one, this one profession holding out and mm-hmm. insisting on behalf of their employers, the drug companies, to be blunt about it, no, it's not a problem. We should have more people on antidepressants. But they're just getting left behind. They are making themselves pretty much irrelevant to the debate. So we've won the, the, the public battle. And as I say already, the public already knows what causes depression. The mm-hmm. public doesn't. It's a chemical imbalance. They never believed that. I've been engaged in this struggle now probably 40, 50 years. And it, it's um, it's a hard one because I, 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 in that time, I think things have I mean, slightly got better, to be honest. And as, as they begin, I think we will now see, for instance, the begin of the decline of antidepressants. They're already lining up the next the next wave of biological treatments. So, um, we're also trying to get rid of ECT, of course. It's a whole other story. Yeah. That, that will come before the end of antidepressants, my prediction. But they're lining up new ones. So the latest one just got approved by mm-hmm. uh, this uh, ketamine nasal spray, for God's right. sake. It's ketamine, um, yes. That is unbelievable. Ketamine is a, is a, is a hallucinogenic and has been used as a horse tranquilizer. It's a street drug. And... I don't doubt for a second that if you put some ketamine up your nose, you're going to feel good for half an hour now. Just as you snorted some cocaine, you're going to feel good for half an hour or three mm-hmm. hours. But as a, as a medical treatment for a, a mental illness, it's insane. Mm-hmm. We also have this parallel, you know, to replace ECT when that fades out, they've already got this brain low-level brain stimulation. So you've got this horrible 1984 image I have where people who are depressed – they can stimulate themselves. They have a little button in their pocket 
and everything starts feeling a bit down. They just press the button, and it just sort of zaps their brain a little bit. Oh. That that scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, if you're depressed and it works, then maybe people, you know, it'll, it it will help some people. Coming back to your original question about why this model is so attractive, it's it's because it actually isn't difficult mm-hmm. to make people artificially make people feel better. Half of us are doing it every weekend with one substance or another to artificially make yourself temporarily feel better. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not difficult. But to do it on an ongoing basis without damaging the brain, yeah. I've never found a way to do that. Uh, you know, one of the other questions I had was just about your the your editor of uh, Psychosis, the, the journal, and if you wanted to speak a little bit about what kinds of research you try and get published there. Uh, yeah, I'm very proud to be the, the, the editor of the journal Psychosis, which just celebrated its 10th, 10th year. This mm-hmm. is the journal of the International Society for Psychological uh, and Social Approaches to Psychosis, which is a, a, a wonderful organisation with branches in about, I think about 25 countries. There was clearly a, a, a gap in the, in the journal market, if, if I can use that term, uh, because most... Um, most scientific journals in the area of psychosis are horribly biological. Um, or uh, Most psychiatry, American Journal of Psychiatry, British Journal of Psychiatry, and all the leading journals are, are quite, have been quite slow to publish psychosocial research uh, in terms of causes or, or solutions. So there was an obvious gap to, to fill. We, we'll publish a whole range of stuff. We publish traditional quantitative and epidemiological studies, but we also like to um, publish qualitative studies where people have interviewed 10, 15 people about an interesting topic. Every edition also has at least one first-person account uh, of um, usually of people who have had psychosis and been through the system, talking through the mental health system, talking about what caused the psychosis in their lives and and how they felt the mental health system treated them, Not usually not very well. But sometimes we have um, mental health professionals as well telling their stories about what it's mm-hmm. like working in the, in the mental health system and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting story, when we started out, some people in, the, in our society um, were worried that we wouldn't be able to be financially viable if we didn't have drug company advertisements like all the other journals do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I had said that I wouldn't um, be the editor if that was the case. Mm-hmm. So we had to resolve that somehow. So I wrote to the I wrote to the publisher Routledge and said, "What what do you think? Is it is it viable to have a journal, a mental health journal, without psychic, without drug company advertisement?" And they <laughs> they wrote back this beautiful letter. What is it with you, mental health people? <laughs> How do you think physics journals and geology journals and every other science in the world? Lives without right. drug company money. Of course, you don't need drug company money. Mm-hmm. So that was that was solution. So we we will not ever have any drug company ads, um, and all people writing who have conflicts of interest with the drug company. So we're unique in that. Not quite unique. There's still one or two um, that don't don't do. It. But I think it's very important. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, hopefully a, a, a useful space for people to publish their journal, including beginning researchers who. Sometimes it's hard to get that first article published. I think that we've covered a, a lot of ground. And thank you so much for opening up and sharing so much of your influences. I think it was very, very helpful to me as a beginning psychologist to have okay. this conversation right. with you.
on a personal level. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.